Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Opening up this installment of the podcast, it's Greg Laurie, pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in California and founder of Harvest Crusades. He's written a new book detailing the salvation of acting icon Steve McQueen. Then it's Karen Kingsbury sharing about the latest novel featuring the Baxter family. The latest release is a prequel to the popular novels built around that family. Plus, Ed Silvoso of Harvest Evangelism and the Transform Our World Network with some insight about the role of the church in the transformation of communities. And on this edition of The Intersection, some comments from Beth Guckenberger of Back to Back Ministries sharing about how the word amen can help a believer appreciate the nature and presence of God. Next, Tony Award-winning producer Jordan Scott Gilbert, who's launched a new off-Broadway presentation that features Christian testimonials from people in the entertainment industry. Also, Nick Pitts of the Denison Forum on Truth and Culture talked with me recently and gave some analysis of current news stories from a biblical perspective. Some of that conversation is coming up. Finally, from the Family Research Council, Andrew Guernsey covers developments related to the life issue, including a draft copy of an order providing relief from the HHS contraception mandate and information from Planned Parenthood's latest annual report. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Greg Laurie is the senior pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California, and founder of Harvest Crusades. The most recent Harvest America event occurred in Phoenix on June 11th. He's also released a new book called Steve McQueen, The Salvation of an American Icon, highlighting the famous actors coming to Christ late in his life. Here now is Greg Laurie. I told the story to Mel Gibson, who I interviewed last year at the Harvest event that we did at Angel Stadium, and I was interviewing him about his new film, Hacksaw Ridge. And as I told him the story of McQueen, uh, Mel, a movie star himself, said, well, I thought that he came to faith when he was on his deathbed. I said, no, Mel, that's what's so amazing about the story. He came to faith when he was at the peak of his career and saw his need for God. And it was about six months to eight months later, he found out he had cancer. And he lived for a number of months after that and fought it with great courage, and I might add, with great faith. But uh, so I, I make pretty much... Uh, an absolute airtight case for this uh, with interviews with people that knew him, uh, things that Steve himself said about his own faith uh, from audio recordings that he made after his conversion. And one statement that Steve made that, that I thought ought to be shared with people was, quote, my only regret in life is that I was not able to tell more people about what Christ had done for me. Wow. And I thought, well, that's a wrong that needs to be righted. Hmm. And that's why I wrote this book. Uh, and that is why I'm working on a film with John Irwin, who directed a lot of great films, including Woodlawn. Uh, we're making a, a documentary film that's going to come out in the month of September. Any idea how he ended up? Did You you mentioned that there was a, a preacher who was speaking when McQueen came to Christ. Is that correct? Yeah, what happened was uh, Steve, of course, as I said, was the number one movie star in the world. He was also a very competent race car driver. In fact, he was so good, he considered leaving acting and going into full-time racing. He once was quoted to say, I don't know if I'm an actor who's a race car driver or a race car driver who acts. Well, actually, he was both. He was also very good at motocross and appeared in a film called On Any Sunday. 
But the one thing Steve always wanted to learn how to do was fly. So he bought an antique Stearman biplane, an old World War II training plane. And uh, there was, and as he, he bought this plane without really knowing much about it and without knowing how to fly. And so he began looking around, finding someone who could teach him. And there was only one guy who was really qualified to teach in that plane. And he was a pilot who lived up in Santa Paula, California. And his name was Sammy Mason. Sammy used to be a stunt pilot, very uh, a strong guy, kind of a man's man, just the perfect guy to connect with Steve because Sammy also was a very strong Christian. So, they, you know, Steve and Sammy spent hours in that cockpit. And Sammy noticed something about, excuse me, Steve noticed something about Sammy that was very appealing. He had an inner peace. And he said, Sammy, what, what is it about you? What is your secret? And Sammy said, well, Steve, it's my faith in Jesus Christ. So Steve actually asked Sammy if he could go to church with him. And Sammy said, sure. So Steve is attending this church, uh, the Ventura Missionary Church there in Santa Paula. And someone told the pastor there, Leonard DeWitt, Stephen Queen is attending church, and people in the community, it was a small town, they knew McQueen lived in town, and Steve liked living there because people just kind of treated him like a regular guy. So people knew he was around, and people were aware he was in the church, and the pastor wisely said, just leave him alone, don't bother him. So Steve just kept coming week after week. He always sat up in the balcony. And then one day, uh, Pastor DeWitt told me that he gets a tap on his shoulder. He turns around, and there stands Steve McQueen. Steve says, Pastor, I'd like to go out, have lunch with you, and ask you a few questions. So they went out for about two hours plus. Steve asked all these questions of Pastor DeWitt, questions like, can the Bible be trusted? Can God really forgive us of all of our sins? And what does it really look like to be a Christian? He was trying to wrap his mind around it. And then at the end of their conversation, Steve said, well, thanks so much, Pastor, you've answered all my questions. And then uh, Leonard DeWitt asked Steve, uh, Leonard DeWitt rather said to Steve, well, I have a question for you. And Steve said, oh, I know what it is. He had that familiar McQueen smile. You want to know if I have become a born-again Christian? And Pastor DeWitt said, yes, I'd like to know that. Steve said, yes, I have. I prayed with you about five weeks ago when you were speaking at church. And so Leonard DeWitt told me that he would meet every week with Steve for an hour of intense Bible study. And Steve's life was changing dramatically. He was in church every week, bringing, bringing people with him, and even thinking about how he could take his position and use it for the Lord. But then about six months later, he found out he had cancer. Greg Laurie here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website harvest.org. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Karen Kingsbury. She shared with me about her latest novel, Love Story, which involves the Baxter family, which is a family that's been included in numerous novels she's written. From that recent conversation, this is Karen Kingsbury. Well, you know, it's funny. The first five books, I really feel like they were just their own family, the Baxters, and, you know, their their beginning is different than my beginning with my husband, Don, but... Um, you know, it's a beautiful broken story. We had some brokenness in our early days as well, and and that was really more centered around faith. So, it, you know, there's an element of that to John and Elizabeth where John's not a believer at all. He doesn't believe in God early on. He feels like he's got to figure life out on his own. He's going to become a doctor, he's going to be successful, and he doesn't need God. And then the the rug, in so to speak, of his life is just sort of pulled out from under him. 
And he winds up in this terrible situation where the, this beautiful girl that he's madly, deeply, passionately in love with is pregnant. And this is completely taboo to her family. And she gets sent away and has to give this baby up for adoption. Now, that much we knew coming into this. But we didn't know what that looked like and how the way that just rocked John Baxter's world and how it set the stage for this life of faith and family. And I think that's the thing that we do have in common. Um, as the books played out, I brought in another family, the Flanagans, and the Flanagans are just like us. So they have three adopted boys from Haiti, as do we, and things that they went through, you know, when their kids were going through theater and soccer, my kids were going through theater and soccer. So, you know, the, there are just, I mean, if we had a funny thing happen, if there was some funny, you know, moment that the kids did, it's in the book. Um, it's in one of the books somewhere. So it's a, there is a lot of autobiographical heart to it. And people who know us say, well, you didn't leave anything out. Like everything wound up somewhere in a story. Who would you say in the, in, in the whole narrative over the last over two dozen books, who are the, who are the principals here? Who are the, who are the main players? Well, you know, the main players really, it's John and Elizabeth initially, of course, but then their daughter, Ashley, is sort of, initially she was the black sheep of the family, and, and she really was working hard to earn that title. You know, she mm. uh, rejected her family and her family's faith, and she went to Paris and just, you know, kind of got in trouble, got, got pregnant, came home with a, a son. And so no one knew at the time that this was a story that had already played out with John and Elizabeth to some degree, because they had kept this a secret. And and really, it's Ashley's story, I think, that people most resonated with. She's very imperfect and passionate all at the same time and, you know, not understanding God, but has to walk through a journey before she finds her own faith in God and, and belief and able, is able to kind of come back to her family and be a, such an instrumental part of the story. And she still is. So I'd say she, if people say, who's your favorite character among all of the books I've written, standalones? Uh, series, people will say Ashley Baxter, right at the top of the list. Carrie is another one, another one of the Baxter kids, and she goes through some tragedy early on and just has to learn how to walk through that. People have learned how to walk through their own tragedies with Carrie. So, you know, some of these, I, I would say every one of the Baxter kids that are now adults and have their families, um, are there's someone that we relate to, someone we resonate with, the the prodigal son or the black sheep or the, the good daughter who had the tragedy happen to her. We just, we find ourselves in the story and, and love story is no different. So it kind of begins with um, one of the grandsons is now in high school. He's got a history project. He needs to write about his heritage. So he goes to his grandfather and he says, Papa, could you tell me in detail the story about you and grandma Elizabeth? Now, you know, this is a hard thing. John hears this and it just like hits him in the chest and, he gets tears in his eyes because he's, you know, his wife passed away many years ago now at this point, and he's remarried. So, you know, to sit there and go week after week meeting once a week with his grandson to go in depth back to the beginning when he fell in love with the love of his life, that's that's hard. And, you know, he needs to get the blessing of his current wife and, and uh, know that if he's going to go that far back, it's going to be tricky to come back to today. Uh, it's going to be a very deep story, and we get to ride right along with it as he goes that goes back to the beginning to that dance where he first met Elizabeth. And, um, you know, along the way, there's a current day story playing out with, with Ashley and her husband Landon and Cole. And kind of as John's talking about his beginning, so does Cole want to know, hey, how did I come to be? And how does this all work for our family? And so it's a, it's a love that's strong enough that what started back with John and Elizabeth is still playing out with the adult 
children and grandchildren. And um, some people have said it's sort of this generation's the notebook. I mean, it's that kind of where we get to see this beautiful picture of love that that was and that in some ways still is. Mm. Karen Kingsbury here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website, Karen Kingsbury, that's K-I-N-G-S-B-U-R-Y dot com. The Intersection continues now with Ed Silvoso, founder and president of Harvest Evangelism and the Transform Our World Network. In our recent conversation, he discussed principles relative to spiritual transformation and the church's role in it for the communities in which local churches are placed. He's written a book called Ecclesia, Rediscovering God's Instrument for Global Transformation. This is Ed Silvoso now. Well, I come from a family of evangelists. You know, my wife Ruth, her older brother is Luis Palau, the evangelist, okay? Her brother-in-law is Juan Carlos Ortiz, another evangelist who wrote the book Disciple. You may remember that. So that's what we have for breakfast every day. (laughs) How can we see people come to Christ? But the reality, Bob, is you can lead multitudes to Christ, and nothing may change in the city. You know, crime may not come down. The economy doesn't bounce back. So I began to wrestle with that. Are we saving just souls, or should we be presenting a gospel that brings salvation, not only to the person, but to the household, like it was the case with Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, a very greedy guy, all of a sudden his money that was tainted became a vehicle for blessings. So that's how the journey began, Bob, and I am so excited because as we share the concept, people come to love Mondays as much as they love Sundays because they discover, I don't go to church, I am the church. I am indwelled by a spirit that is more powerful than any spirit in the workplace or on the school campuses. And when they discover that, they begin to behave like the ecclesia. Well, let's talk about that word. People may have heard the word ecclesia. They may have, may be familiar with the book of the Bible. I hope so. Ecclesiastes. <laughs> you've got that well, word, that root. You've got basically the same root word. What does it mean from your standpoint? Well, I chose the word ecclesia because basically, as you know, it means uh, it's the word that is translated church. But if I say church, people think of a building, a pulpit, clergy, laity, which is okay, but that horse is not going to win this race, okay? We need to take the people that are inside the four walls to take them to the marketplace. So my book began with a reflection. If the church is so important, why did Jesus speak about it only twice? Why there are no commands to plant a church, much less instructions on how to plant a church? And that led me to discover that ecclesia, what we translate church, already existed in Jesus' days. It was invented by the Greeks, co-opted by the Romans, basically was an assembly of people that made sure the will of the emperor was carried out in the city. So Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple. He could have said it, but he didn't. He didn't say, I will build my synagogue, 
Both of them were religious institutions tied to a building. He picked a group of people. Ecclesia means assembly, people. I will build a team that will beat the other team. And that's why I chose the word ecclesia, Bob, because I want people to do what you just did. What do you mean by it? And I said, I mean what Jesus meant. is people that take his presence and power for the gates of Hades are Monday morning in the workplace, and those gates collapse. You can change the spiritual climate in the workplace, in the school where you go to or your kids go to, in your neighborhood. If you become the ecclesia, you are the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. And you begin to bless people rather than blast, fellowship with them rather than avoid them, minister to them rather than judge them. And when you do that, you bring the kingdom of God near them. And Bob, when the kingdom of God gets near a sinner, I still have to find the sinner that refuses to get in. Ed Silvoso here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website transformourworld.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House radio program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. The intersection continues now with Beth Guckenberger. She serves as co-executive director of Back-to-Back Ministries along with her husband, Todd. In our recent conversation, she shared principles related to her book, Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. This is Beth Guckenberger. I think all the time, even when I think I have the right motives, I'm sure I've got my own agenda simultaneously going on. And it's so precious to me that Jesus chooses to still listen, even though I I can be manipulative in prayer or I can be demanding in prayer. I mean, I think there's a whole chapter in the book about the role of confession and how critical it is to prayer um, that, that it's really, I believe God to be the author of my faith. So when I pray with him, it's more about me trying to understand the story the author's writing than it is me trying to rewrite a chapter. And I think starting with Amen has helped me understand the story as unfolding the way that it was written to be unfolded. And I can get perspective, insight, conviction, encouragement, all kinds of things when I come to the Lord in prayer. If my only agenda when I come to prayer is to get him to reroute or course correct something I don't like that I'm seeing, I've missed out on the entire opportunity I have to communicate with the Holy God. And I think, again, I've been praying in all the ways I was taught to pray for many, 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 many years. And I think God answered my prayers. And I think sometimes he did not answer my prayers because his His ways are higher than mine. And his understanding was greater than, than the short-sighted request I might have had at that time. I think what has brought me such Freedom uh, is the best word I can think of it. Maybe lightness is the other word. But it's brought me such freedom and, and lightness in my walk with the Lord these days 
is I have a curiosity. What are you up to in this story? I have a friend who has a daughter that's hurting. She told me about it yesterday. Traditionally, I might have began to ask God to fix the problem that I could see from my perspective. But now I ask God to say, where do you want to use me in the story? What is it that you want to teach me? What are you trying to teach her? How might I get engaged? How can I be in the front row of whatever it is that you're doing? How are you going to comfort her? How can I be comforted by the way that you're comforting her? What what kind of wisdom can we all gain from walking through this story with our hand in yours? Like I have a whole different set of questions than I've ever had Mm. in my faith walk before. Something that has been helpful for you is actually starting literally physically saying the word amen at the beginning of the prayer. There's also an element, as I understand it, in the book where you're encouraging people to begin to live amen, i.e. to make that a lifestyle. Explain that just a bit, if you would. Yeah, um, you know, the book's been out about a month, and so some of the feedback I've gotten from readers in the last month that's been the most meaningful to me is their understanding of that very concept you just highlighted, the idea that it's a lifestyle, that it's not just a a discipline or an exercise, and that this lifestyle has enabled them to have more conversations of substance with the people that are in their life. And that really has always been um, an objective of mine. I I, I find that if if my agenda with the Lord is like, hey, you better do things the way that I want you to do them, and if you don't, I'm going to feel kind of frustrated with you about it. Then I carry that spirit into my human relationships. Like, I kind of want you to do what I want you to do, and if you don't, I'm going to be kind of frustrated about it. But but as I've gone into the Lord with this other posture, this posture that I trust you, I, um, I believe in you, I, I, I surrender to you, and what he's given me back, as my basket gets emptied in prayer and he fills it back up with things like peace and patience and self-control and wisdom and discernment and mercy and love and all kinds of good gifts he gives us, then I've now had those gifts in my metaphorical basket to extend to my human relationships. And that is that practicing of living, amen, that like I can't control you, child or friend or spouse um, or neighbor. But you know what? This is not about me wanting you to do what I want you to do. This is about me giving you what it is that I have more than I need of. And that living human, I can't even tell you. It's it's been it's been radical in my own life. I have ten children and a great big um, set of responsibilities. It's mm. been radical for me in my life, and it's been fun for me to hear in the last month readers talk about the way that they've seen it impact their relationships. Beth Guckenberger here on the intersection. Find out more by visiting the website Beth Guckenberger. That's G U C K E N B E R G E R dot com. The intersection continues now with Tony Award-winning producer Jordan Scott Gilbert, creator, director, and producer of the new off-Broadway presentation called Celebrity Confessions, live from Broadway. In our conversation, he shared some of his own faith story and the inspiration of and content of this new show. From that conversation, this is Jordan Scott Gilbert. I grew up uh, in in, in an entertainment household because my dad was a talk show host. And I had some other people in my family who were in the, in the industry. And uh, I grew up surrounded by musical theater and theater people and Broadway uh, uh, people and celebrities. And so it was an interesting childhood. Um, and later on, uh, I, 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 I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. And later on, I got saved. <laughs> I got saved uh, a few years ago, actually. Uh, but totally the last thing I ever thought I would be was a Christian. <laughs> in a 100% Jewish family, uh, wasn't looking for Christianity, 
when I was doing my first Broadway show, uh, it was my last year of college. I was working on my first Broadway production, and uh, I was introduced to the world of drug, sex, and rock and roll, which I tell more about my testimony within the production. Um, and that opened me to uh, the occult. <laughs> so wow. I got into white magic and all kinds of things, which is very prevalent in the entertainment industry. Um, and so what what happened to me is that I got sucked into the pursuit of stardom and the pursuit of celebrity and the pursuit of needing the approval of others. And this just got worse and worse as I got older and I got sucked into the world more and more and more. And so it wasn't until I was saved that I saw what was happening to me and my life totally changed. And uh, that, that's the, what I tell in this show, but that's what all these other personalities, Broadway, TV, film, celebrities, uh, uh, born again, Christians tell in this production, they tell their salvation testimony, but they also tell their story and they tell their story from where they were and and where they are now. And so uh, for people who are coming in, even who aren't saved, uh, they're going to find all the juicy celebrity gossip, which, which none of us are a fan of, but that's part of their, their testimony. And so it's a really interesting production. So you have developed celebrity confessions live from Broadway. So take me through the process of putting putting this together. What did you want to do with it, too? Sure. Well, a lot of the shows nowadays, a lot, or, or rather, people go to see shows to see celebrities today. Um, and if it's not a celebrity, like a show like Lame is Rob or Cats or Miss Saigon, the show is made a celebrity. <laughs> So when people go to see a show, they see a celebrity. And I said, well, you know, this is not news. I mean, people know this, especially in the entertainment industry. Uh, So why not have Christian celebrities give their testimony? Because what we want to do, and this is not a secret. This is not, okay, well, here's the Christian camp over here, and here's the secular camp over here, meaning, okay, I'm going to market to the Christians like this. I'm going to market to the secular people like this. Um, We know as Christians that, in, in order to preach the gospel, um, we have to preach the gospel, but also meet people, try to meet people where they are, right? So with people wanting to see celebrities, we want to meet them where they are. So if they're, they're, they're coming to Broadway or off-Broadway to see a show with a star in it, well, give them what they want, but preach, them, preach the gospel, preach the uncompromised word of God. Um, and, uh, you know, at the very least, like I said, this isn't a secret. I'm not trying to hide it and bait and switch. At the very least, they'll be very entertained. I mean, from drug, sex, and rock and roll <laughs> and other things, uh, they're going to be entertained by these people's lives. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but they will be. That's what they come to to see. Uh, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. They want to hear about that? They'll hear about it. But they're also going to hear the gospel. And And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that's the idea behind this, that, you know, why this show? Well, because people want to see celebrities. So if we can do that and show them these are celebrities, these are real celebrities, and, and celebrity doesn't fulfill, and these are their juicy stories, and, and they had the lust of the world, but nothing really, it, it, didn't fill, it didn't fill them. So nothing came of it. So, but the answer is not celebrity. The answer is Jesus. Hmm. And that's, that's the reason why we're doing this show. Jordan Scott Gilbert here on The Intersection. You can learn more at CelebrityConfessionsBroadway.com. 
This is the Intersection Podcast. Recently, I had a chance to speak with Nick Pitts, the Director of Cultural Engagement at the Denison Forum on Truth and Culture, as he provided some analysis about current news stories, including offering some scriptural principles that are applicable. From that conversation, this is Nick Pitts. One of the things that I was most shocked by, and I, and I can't remember it in recent history, is that there were multiple times that, that uh, former director Comey just flat out called the president of the United States a liar. And that's just, that was just, I thought that was just fascinating. And that was just such harsh language that he was going to use. But again, I think what we continue to see outside of that is not only just those accusations that um, press, or I guess director Comey had relative to president Trump, but we also saw the uh, the retract the refutation of the CNN article that came about of the New York Times article that came about as well. But who would have thought in 2017 that we would have been within the first 200 days of President Trump's presidency that we would be that we would be watching with rapt attention as this type of an event was unfolding? It was mm. unprecedented in nature. It is. Amazing to me, I think probably the biggest takeaway, at least for me, was the fact that Mr. Comey, in an attempt to to force the Justice Department to appoint a special prosecutor, a special counsel in this case, Comey admitted to leaking the information from his memo (laughs) through a law professor to the press. And then to even add further to the politicalization of what should have been Lady Justice being blind in this moment, he admitted uh, during his conversation with Loretta Lynch that he would change it from the, the parlance from an investigation relative to Secretary Clinton to a uh, concerning the matters or, or what have you. And so, again, it just it's just increasingly discouraging. And, and again, what we're continuing to see is Comey raised a lot more questions than the answers that he was able to provide. But what we saw from the populace as well as just from commentators that are, are kind of moving in this space is that individuals are beginning to stake out their claims, that this was an event whereby individuals weren't seeking to learn anything as much as they were seeking to arm up mm. on their preconceived notions and biases that they're bringing into this. So if anything, it just further reminded us and further galvanized the populace, whereby even within our church pews, I would dare say that individuals have their preconceived notions and confirmation biases, and they're just they've loaded up because of what happened. And just in, it's, it's increasingly becoming more of a problem here in the U.S. What do you see as some of the the biblical issues? We, as you mentioned already, staking out that ground. What are some other things that that people of faith? What are some things that that we can be reminded of? What I'm increasingly concerned by is I just as you can again just kind of see see the position where we're at right now is that there's just this uh, again politics is not a bad thing. Politics is the avenue whereby there's the competing uh, ideas in the public square. For how do we continue to make this in our pursuit to make a more prosperous nation in this pursuit of happiness? So politics isn't bad, but politics has a has a place within our culture, and increasingly that place is just becoming much more pervasive in nature, and I think that's going to be it's just going to be detrimental for us moving forward as we're just becoming more and more fractitious. So, for, so for example, I'm just increasingly alarmed by the number of individuals that don't even know their neighbor, but are willing to disagree and demonize with their neighbor. So Forbes came out with a study that said that 51% of Americans don't even know their neighbor's name. 
I think that's I think that's a problem, especially for an individual that uh, that subscribes to the biblical narrative that you are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it's really hard to love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor's name, but it's really easy to demonize your neighbor if the only way you're communicating with them is through um, is through the internet or through just um, or through Facebook or one of the social media platforms. And, and I think it's going to be increasingly necessary for the church to really begin to heed some of those things that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4, 3, to seek the unity of peace through the bond of the Spirit, or what, what the writer of Hebrews is going to say as to keep the unity at all costs. Like, for the, we're, this problem of the fractitious nature of where we're at today cannot be solved by politics because politics largely has divided us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that we do we're, – we're always going to have competing ideas and differences as to, as to what's the best way to move forward. But we just need to keep it in its place. And so where politics at times can divide us, really the church is supposed to bring about this unity and this, divi- this unity within us mm. because we, after all, are agents of reconciliation, not only uniting individuals to God but uniting one another. Nick Pitts here on The Intersection. Learn more at Denison Forum. That's D. E-N-I-S-O-N forum.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Andrew Guernsey. He serves as a legislative assistant for the Government Affairs Team at Family Research Council. He discussed with me some developments related to the life issues, including a draft copy of a new HHS policy on the contraception mandate and the release of the Planned Parenthood annual report. This now is Andrew Guernsey. I think this is absolutely uh, something to celebrate from conservatives uh, with the leaked draft. But finally, the U.S. government has acknowledged that people can get contraceptives without forcing nuns and religious organizations and nonprofits uh, from doing so. In fact, the HHS mandate imposes crippling fines uh, on people of faith of up to $100 per day per employee uh, under the Obama regime. So this is a, a long overdue and a long uh, a long-justified action taken by HHS here. And we, we look forward and encourage the administration to go forward with this, this leaked draft uh, in its final rule. Well, when we say a leaked draft, obviously it is a draft, so it is not final. How did this actually become public? Well, uh, the actual text was released to a liberal outlet, Vox.com, and it appears as similar to uh, the executive order on religious freedom uh, that some enemies, uh, probably holdovers from the Obama era, uh, still in the executive branch, uh, clearly were try- are trying to sabotage this. So I think this shows an excellent reason of why conservatives need to be vocal and support the administration in taking this action uh, so that they do not think that the pushback is going to make be greater than the, the campaign promises that they made. The Religious Liberty Executive Order actually referred to this HHS mandate, but this takes it a step further. So, so talk about the language that you've seen here. Sure. Uh, so the executive order that President Trump signed uh, on the day of the National Day of Prayer uh, directed the HHS to take steps to issue rules uh, that would address the Little Sisters and other religious organizations uh, that are victimized by the HHS contraception mandate. Um, so this is a essentially a teasing out or a much more explicit and broad exemption than the more uh, the vague, more the less specific language that we saw in the president's executive order. 
Um, so, but it's consistent with what President Trump promised to do on the campaign trail to protect people of faith. And it's also consistent uh, with the views of the secretary of HHS, uh, uh, Dr. Price, who is absolutely committed uh, to protecting religious freedom for, for everybody. We also have this insidious state that has has been existing now for years and years where the taxpayers of America, to the tune of over $550 million, that a Family Research Council press release reports that Planned Parenthood received from taxpayers in the most recent year, Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider, is receiving that amount of money from the federal government. Planned Parenthood has just recently released its 2015-16 annual report. And I'll tell you what, Andrew, this is certainly disturbing when we look at, you know, those of us that are in the pro-life movement that have a pro-life perspective, when we look at the government subsidizing abortion through funding Planned Parenthood. It's certainly insidious. Absolutely. So Planned Parenthood's recent annual report uh, came out just this month, and this is a six-month delay from when they were supposed to release it. But the results are damaging uh, for their efforts to continue taxpayer funding. First of all, Planned Parenthood's losing clients, and they're reducing the few health services that they even offer to women. Uh, yet it's managed to increase its number of abortions and its taxpayer revenues. So clearly this, this report shows that Planned Parenthood is an abortion agency. That's what they do. That's what the core of their business model is. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely essential, as you pointed out, that, that we remove taxpayer funding uh, from this organization that doesn't provide health care to women as much as it provides abortion of children. Mm. The Republicans' health care bill that's currently in the Senate uh, that can pass with 51 votes would remove funding uh, from Planned Parenthood from the vast majority of their taxpayer funding from the federal government. So it's important that those that provision uh, continues in the Senate version of the health care bill. Uh, that's in the Senate, which we may expect to vote on uh, by Ju- by July 4th. Mm. So, definitely want to encourage your your uh, listeners to call your con- to call your senator rather uh, to tell them to support the defunding of Planned Parenthood in the uh, health care bill. Andrew Guernsey here on the intersection. The FRC website is frc.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You can get connected to content relative to the program, including the media center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to The Intersection through the website, and there are two blogs that are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can get connected to video content also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.